Hello, Rebecca Langley here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network and brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week, Marcus Harrington went down to the wharves to support local wharfies and send loud and clear message to big business that we will not be bullied and intimidated into surrendering workplace rights and conditions. More from the docks later in the show. But first, some union news. This week, the Sydney Morning Herald reported that jewellery chain Michael Hill says it underpaid staff by as much as $25 million over the past six years, making it the latest major company to confess to shortchanging workers. The revelation has raised new questions about whether the penalties for underpayment are a big enough deterrent to breaking the law. Michael Hill, which employs about 2,000 people in its 171 Australian stores, on Thursday said an initial review of store staff contracts and rosters instigated by its new chief executive, Daniel Bracken, found non-compliance with the applicable award rates. A more detailed review by auditors, PricewaterhouseCoopers, is being undertaken with urgency to determine exactly how much each worker is owed, it said. An early estimate for the total back pay bill is between $10 million and $25 million. We have self-discovered this issue. We're going to resolve this matter as a priority. We're going to pay affected team members what is owed to them, said Mr Bracken, who joined the business in November last year. This is something we're particularly disappointed by. Michael Hill did not notify the Fair Work Ombudsman, which said it was concerned by the scale of the reported underpayments and would contact the $200 million company itself. The Fair Work Ombudsman, or FWO, can pursue fines for breaching workplace law, with the maximum penalty for a company $630,000 per contravention. The highest penalty the FWO has ever secured through litigation is $660,000. Alan Fells, the former competition SAR, said the Michael Hill case showed potential penalties for underpayment were not enough of a deterrent. It's alarming the disparity between the amount of underpayment and the profit gain for the business and the actual fine, he said. Mr Fells said workplace law penalties should be brought into line with consumer law, under which companies can be fined up to $10 million, or three times the financial benefit they received per breach. Those charges and potential jail time were recommended in Mr Fell's Migrant Workers Task Force review. The Morrison government has accepted the review's 22 recommendations in principle, but is yet to enact them. Michael Hill is not the first large company to be caught out on wages. Super Retail Group, which owns Rebel Sport and Super Cheap Auto, in February confessed to underpaying store managers about $32 million over six years by not applying overtime rates properly. And in the same month, Qantas said it had underpaid 55 head office workers by around $8,000 a year each because it had not applied the relevant enterprise agreement. Australian Council of Trade Unions Secretary Sally McManus said employers were breaking the law every day and the government needed to do more to stamp out wage theft. 
As we can see from examples like Michael Hill, these are not small employers who do not know or have internal capacity to understand the law, she said. Often this law-breaking is deliberate and planned. The back pay bill could significantly dent Michael Hill's profit, which market analysts expected to be about $28 million next year. The Sydney Morning Herald also released some analysis on the gig economy this week, a topic which we have been covering closely on Stick Together. They found that app-based platforms present themselves as entities that provide a modern, efficient way of matching supply and demand while providing hyper-flexible work. Using flatter organisational structures, blurred organisational boundaries and algorithmic management systems, organisations like Uber, Deliveroo and Ola have been able to create new ways of organising work. Vital to the success of app-based platforms has been their ability to provide a reliable consumer experience with workers who are engaged on a contingency basis, often as contractors rather than employees. Workers consequently carry most of the risk, while platforms benefit from a lack of employee idle time and payroll taxes. Although the independent contractor classification constrains platforms' ability to direct workers about how, when and where to perform the work, There are various subtle and covert ways through which they seek to influence how work is performed. While the work's hyperflexibility is often hailed as the main benefit for workers, our research reveals that in practice it is much more constrained. In effect, the flexibility discourse seeks to mask platforms' control over workers. In Australia and elsewhere, who controls the way the work is performed is at the core of legal tests that determine worker status. Crucial in regulatory decisions about the status of platform workers has been the question of where and when the work is performed, whereby higher flexibility can indicate less control. Partly because platform workers are able to log on and off at their discretion, the Fair Work Commission and Ombudsman effectively endorsed Uber's ride-hailing model. In other parts of the platform economy, the classification debate, however, is far from settled. Our research on food delivery, for instance, found that while workers in theory enjoy the same flexibility to select the time of work, it is much more constrained, for instance, by consumer demand. Through their digital infrastructures, including apps, how the work is performed is also more tightly controlled than platforms usually let on. We identified three distinct forms of control that delivery platforms such as Uber Eats and Delivery exercise over workers. First, algorithmic management ensures platforms are able to constantly monitor and capture data on worker performance. This is subsequently used to control and nudge worker behaviour, an issue to which Australian regulators and tribunals thus far have given limited consideration. Second, by creating information gaps such as withholding important details of deliveries at the time of acceptance, platforms constrain worker choice. Although purportedly micro-entrepreneurs, Workers are unable to make informed business decisions like whether a delivery is economically viable, making a mockery of the notion of enterprise. Finally, workers receive only limited information on how the captured performance data, including consumer ratings, affects work allocation and continued platform access. By obscuring the nature of their performance management systems, as well as the other controls, platforms can elicit worker compliance, including indirectly influencing when and where work is performed, illustrating that the narrative of hyperflexibility is somewhat of a mirage. 
The ACTU this week has condemned the arrest and detention of Reni Desmiria, secretary of the SPBMI Union for Workers at Global Seafood Processor Bumi Manara in Ternusa, BMI in Indonesia. Ms Desmaria was arrested on May 17th at her home by Indonesian police armed with automatic weapons. The company called for Reni Desmaria's arrest after she successfully organised a large number of BMI workers to enrol in a mandatory government health insurance scheme. BMI reported her to police, alleging she had submitted a fake high school certificate when she was hired as a casual worker in 2011. The company is now pushing for her to be imprisoned for six years, the maximum penalty for the offence. Prior to her arrest, Ms Desmaria had returned to work from maternity leave. Now in prison, she is forced to be away from her two young children. Unions from across Indonesia have demonstrated outside the BMI factory gates in Lampung. The ACTU president, Michelle O'Neill, had this to say. The ACTU utterly condemns the detention of the representatives of working people in Indonesia. Every worker should have the right to organise and be a union member without persecution. Reni Desmaria has an important role as secretary of the SPBMI union, representing workers in the seafood processing industry. Her arrest, for something she is alleged to have done eight years ago, is an attempt to delegitimise her work as a leader in the Indonesian union movement. When working people and their representatives have their freedoms attacked anywhere in our region, it damages all of us. The ABC this week reported that at least two workers at the Juralung Power Station in the Latrobe Valley, east of Melbourne, have been exposed to asbestos while undertaking maintenance work at the plant. The CFMEU said the two workers were removing a piece of plant in the ductwork around a gas turbine when they were showered with asbestos. Jiralung is a gas power station located outside the town, which was built in the 1970s and has a capacity of 450 megawatts. The plant's owner, Energy Australia, has confirmed two workers were working in an area where a component was identified as potentially containing asbestos on Thursday, July 4th, and in a statement said the matter had been reported to WorkSafe. The CFMEU's construction and general organiser for Gippsland, Toby Thornton, said potentially more people could have been exposed. The two men, one from the Latrobe Valley and the other from the Sale area, were the only two directly exposed to the asbestos, but the union said that because of the large amount of asbestos released and wind conditions on the day, other parts of the site were contaminated. Mr Thornton also claimed procedures were not followed and the workers did not have the appropriate decontamination and said the workers went to the other facilities, including offices, potentially exposing other people. An Energy Australia spokesman said the workers were removing an expansion joint, which is used to connect two sections of pipeline, which was identified as potentially containing asbestos. The operator in charge at Jiralung, as he had been trained to do, had the workers stop work immediately on that section of the plant. The area was sectioned off, so no other workers could enter, he said. The material was tested late Friday on July 5th. The following day, results showed it was asbestos. Energy Australia said its people responded appropriately and according to our processes and arranged for specialists certified in asbestos removal and disposal to visit the plant on Monday. In the statement, the spokesman said the area had been cleaned and a clearance certificate issued to allow work to resume in the area. 
We are complying with WorkSafe Victoria's investigation of the incident and with the notices it has issued, he said. The two workers are power industry veterans who were working for a maintenance contractor at the time of their exposure. Mr Thornton said they were still working at the site and were in a bit of shock and disappointed by their exposure. They've all worked in the power industry before at all the major sites. They have a very strict policy that if you suspect a material is asbestos, you treat it as asbestos, he said. This didn't happen on this occasion, so they are more disappointed that they potentially could have been exposed. Asbestos can cause a variety of conditions, including asbestosis and mesothelioma, but asbestos-related diseases can take decades to manifest. The Chief Executive of the Asbestos Council of Victoria, Vicky Hamilton, said she was amazed that there was not an awareness of what they were doing at this job. One exposure is just as bad as a whole heap. There is no dose-related response to this. So we just sit and wait. It's like a ticking time bomb, Ms Hamilton said. She said her organisation had been notified of the exposure by the CFMEU and was making counsellors available for the affected workers. A WorkSafe spokeswoman said WorkSafe had visited the site and inquiries were continuing. This week, The Guardian reported that the CFMEU has revealed contract and casual mine workers in Queensland are fearful of retribution if they complain about questionable safety practices. This comes as the sector grapples with the sixth workplace death in the past year. The recent cluster of accidents and deaths, which we reported last week, is the worst on record in Queensland for 22 years and has prompted the state government to commission two independent reviews into mine safety. In the meantime, safety experts and the Mine Workers Union have raised concern about the reporting culture at mine sites, where most workers are now employed on a casual basis by labour hire companies rather than working directly for the multinational mine operators. Morale is absolutely the lowest I've ever seen it, said the CFMEU Queensland Mining and Energy Division President Stephen Smith. Major mining operations are increasingly staffed by workers without the security of a permanent job. About 60% are contractors working for labour hire firms. People don't think they can speak up. People think, how am I going to put food on the table if I can't get regular work? The workplace practices mean that workers, for fear of reprisals, won't stand up and speak out. Something drastic has to happen. We're calling for a reset. The industry has got to take stock because how do you keep doing what we're doing and nothing changes? Guardian Australia is aware of a recent incident at a large Queensland coal mine where labour hire workers were instructed to operate bulldozers near a body of water in similar circumstances to a fatal accident that occurred at a separate mine site in December. The experienced mine worker was killed when his bulldozer rolled about 20 metres into a body of mud and water on 31st of December. Subsequently, the Queensland government made non-binding recommendations to prevent a similar incident. The most recent fatality occurred on Sunday, July 7th. A 27-year-old mine worker, Jack Gerds, was crushed and killed while trying to get into an excavator at the Baralaba North Mine in the Bowen Basin. On the same day, another man, aged 57, was seriously injured after falling about 10 metres from a platform at a coal mine in Collinsville. David Cliff, a leading health and safety expert, says modern safety standards meant all mine workplace accidents should be preventable. To get one or two may be an aberration, Cliff said. To get six is not an aberration. 
Cliff from the Minerals Industry Safety and Health Centre said high degrees of automation and larger machinery had resulted in fewer workers on mine sites and workers who were required to perform more diverse tasks. You need to be eternally vigilant. The key to fixing things is to predict the precursor events or situations before they become an accident. We need to get a really good reporting culture with no fear of blame. If someone does something wrong, we don't want them not reporting it because they're afraid to lose their job. The Queensland Resources Council in a statement on Monday said that no death on a mine site is acceptable. Industry is working on measures for a safety reset to refocus on safety in light of the recent tragedies, the statement said. But on Tuesday, the Queensland Mines Minister, Anthony Linham, went public to confirm that an advisory committee on mining safety had not met for four months because it had been unable to meet state-mandated gender quotas. While the committee's inaction has stirred some minor political and media outrage, most in the sector acknowledge the real issues are occurring at the coalface, not in a committee room. Cliff said it was drawing a very long bow to suggest the incidents were in any way linked to the committee. Smith said issues with the committee were a smokescreen. There's no way a committee would stop someone being killed. It's a beat-up. They're missing the point, Smith said. The lack of experience, the lack of supervision, the push for production, the influx of labour hire, they're the real issues. If I have an accident on the highway, I can be charged and go to jail. What happens with a multinational? They hire someone else and get back to business. The next CEO will get up and say safety is paramount, but they're all full of shit. It's a big machine and they just want production at any cost. Nothing is going to really change until we change the work practices. On Sunday, as news filtered through of the most recent fatality and another accident, residents of the Bowen Basin's mining towns experienced a familiar panic. Most mines don't allow workers to carry mobile phones on shift. People could not reach their loved ones. It flows on to their partners in the communities, Smith said. When one person dies in the mining industry, it has a ripple effect that runs through the communities. The Strike for Climate movement is encouraging workers around the world to down tools on Friday, September 20, and spend the day demanding emergency action to tackle the climate crisis. Several global corporations have told media they support their workers taking time off. Clothing company Patagonia went as far as to promise to bail out employees arrested for non-violent environmental activism. In Australia, there is no shortage of major employers that say they are serious about addressing climate change and reducing emissions. When contacted to ask if they would allow workers to take the day off to send a message to policymakers, there was silence from many, including the nation's biggest miners. One of the biggest emitters in the country, Woodside, declined to comment. ANZ advised that if any of its 45,000 staff wanted to take the day off, they should talk to their line manager and take some sort of approved leave. Energy Australia and National Australia Bank both confirmed they recognise climate change as a significant challenge for the economy and society, and both gave their employees two days of annual volunteer leave, which they can use to wave placards demanding greater restriction of emissions if they wish. Former fossil fuel executive turned climate activist Ian Dunlop has cast doubt on how serious Australian businesses are in backing up their public statements on climate change with real action. Mr Dunlop has co-authored several policy documents on the threat to society and human existence climate change poses. 
We're already seeing the investment groups, particularly the superannuation funds with long-term horizons, are recognising that this is a threat which is going to be far greater than the global financial crisis in 2008, he said. Industry Super Australia said it would allow its employees to attend a day of action. We support our workforce to stand up for their values and would work with any employee who wished to participate to make that possible, the group said in a statement. Mr Dunlop pointed to the pressure that the super funds were now placing on emitters and fossil fuel firms to reduce emissions. In addition, you have the regulators, ASIC, the RBA and APRA, all now following the lead of the Bank of England, Mark Carney and the Financial Security Board with his task force on risk exposure, he said. All of the pressure is coming on and saying we have a risk here. It is not just a figment of somebody's imagination and this is happening. It will not go away. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Last Friday, trade unionists and community activists converged on Swanston Dock to throw their support behind striking wharfies who are battling to protect jobs and conditions at Australia's largest stevedore. More than 600 wharfies took part in a four-day strike at the DP World Container Terminal, along with more than a 1,000 colleagues taking industrial actions at ports in Sydney, Brisbane and Fremantle. The Maritime Union of Australia said workers at Australia's largest stevedore had taken industrial action in an effort to finalise a workplace agreement that would protect them against outsourcing, automation and cuts to conditions such as income protection. MUA Victorian Deputy Branch Secretary David Ball said the community barbecue on Friday was an opportunity for the broader community to support the struggle of Melbourne wharfies. Wharfies didn't take this strike action lightly, but when DP World Management is insisting on an agreement that will have significant unacceptable detrimental impacts on workers, they are left with no choice but to fight back, Mr Ball said. Rather than bargain in good faith, management drew a line in the sand telling workers they needed to withdraw their claims entirely and accept the company's offer if they want to reach an agreement. What DP World need to recognise is that Australian workers have rights and are prepared to fight for those rights and protections in their agreement. Stick Together reporter Marcus Harrington was at the barbecue. Okay, and we're down here at the DP World picket line in uh, West Melbourne, joined by Dave Kerrin. Uh, So Dave, you've been uh, campaigning for a long time about uh, the situation where uh, workers and employers uh, don't sit equal before the law, so do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure Marcus. Well, uh, like... In this country and globally, if you go back to the 70s, in Australia specifically, it was 1977, um, we saw the introduction of, uh, you know, the neoliberal anti-union laws and specifically laws that outlaw solidarity. Um, Now, it started in 1973 in Chile uh, with a fascist coup that got rid of the Allende socialist government there. They introduced the neoliberal laws. So privatisation, casualisation, sham contracting, all of that came in. Now... Um, as part of that was the anti-solidarity laws. In Australia, it happened when we were made part of the Corporations Act and they said that we, uh, it was illegal for one union to show solidarity with another because we would affect more than one employer. 
Now, those laws, of course, never uh, don't apply and never will apply to the employer. So what it means is every time we have a blue, they line the trucks up at a gate or, or uh, employ another workforce inside. We try to stop that process. We're affecting two, three, four other employers. Our unions get hit. So what does that do? That sets us up before our courts to be unequal as citizens in our own country so that we've got employers being, you know, uh, their solidarity is fostered. It's advised by industrial consultants. Our solidarity is, is criminalised. And, and now that's been going on in this country since 1977. Um, we've been corralled by further laws that they've thrown in on top of that, all your work choices, your Australian Building Construction Committee, the ABCC, all of those sorts of things were piled on top of the laws that outlawed solidarity. And, of course, if you take away solidarity from a union, that's our, that's our reason for being, and it's also the way we win. So, yeah, it's understandable that they want to get rid of that. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm... Every time I'm involved in a dispute, I'm here because, for me, the big struggle is to, uh, to make us equal before our own courts again, um, uh, where, uh, for instance, the, the, uh, uh, even organisations like the uh, United Nations, the, the International Labour Organisation, ILO, part of the UN, yeah? I mean, they have clauses, which we're party to. We've signed off on these conventions, which say that where a country has anti-solidarity laws like 45 d e in this country, which came in in 1977, they are meant to have um, no secondary workforce laws. So even relatively conservative organisations like the ILO are saying that, all right, if you're going to say unions can't show solidarity with each other, then you've also got to say no scabs. Now, you know, we could almost live with that because if you can withdraw your labour and they can't replace you, then they'll, you know, soon you'll have a rational conversation. Yeah, <laughs> but so the, uh, the bosses can show solidarity to each other, but under Australian law, workers, it's illegal, unlawful. That's exactly it. That's nailed it. And and of course, what that means, what it's meant, is that when they moved that in in 1977, what effect did that have? Well, the whole it meant they could roll out the neoliberal agenda. That meant all our assets were stolen and sold. That meant they introduced casualisation, offshoring of jobs, sham contracting. And, 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 you know, so the consequences of the anti-solidarity laws was that. Casualisation was sold on the basis of their freedom and flexibility, but, but for who? It was. Well, initially it was sold on the basis that they would only ever replace relieving staff in the big public sector or enterprises that they wanted to privatise. That was the promise. It would never go beyond relievers. Well, now you've got, what, 44% of our young people working casual. So working without rights, that's the key. No one chooses to work without rights. So this is, this is it's bullshit for anyone to say that. And, uh, and you know, I, I think more and more people are coming to understand that. Okay, thanks, Dave. Cheers. Thanks, Marcus. Good on you. That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks to you for listening and thanks to Marcus Harrington and the Woffies. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. My name's Rebecca Langley. Catch you next time.